Hello, and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. Now, one of the topics that listeners have asked me to cover in the past surrounds how to actually discuss and debate climate change with people around them. Given that we're in the middle of a series about climate change, I thought it would be a good idea to address this question. Now, there is one way that is an obvious way of trying to approach this subject. And if I were writing this script, say, 10 years ago, then I think this is probably what I would do. And that would be to go through every single argument used by people who deny the science of anthropogenic climate change and refute each of those arguments with the evidence. Now, I could do that. Plenty of the arguments are pretty easy to refute when you know about basic scientific principles and the major lines of evidence that climate change is indeed caused by us. You know, we're talking about things like the isotope ratio argument, which demonstrates that the increase in CO2 comes from burning fossil fuels and land clearance, that kind of thing. But I'm not actually going to do that in this mini-series of episodes here for several reasons. The first is that it is in fact extremely difficult to win an argument on these terms because it sort of presupposes the person you're arguing with can actually be persuaded. If you find yourself arguing with an honest-to-god climate denier, most often what you will notice them doing is deploying the age-old tactic of gish gallop. This is a rhetorical tactic which can often be unreasonably effective in conversations, especially when there is an audience listening that is predisposed to one side of the argument. And basically, it consists of throwing out endless chaff, a never-ending list of flimsy arguments which your opponent is then forced to refute so that it doesn't look like they have left any of your points unanswered. And I've had conversations with deniers that are like this. In fact, most people who are not uh, unconvinced by climate change, but actually firmly believing that it's not true, they, they tend to argue in this manner. You know, first they'll argue that CO2 doesn't come from humans, then that CO2 doesn't cause warming. They might first argue that climate has always changed and therefore we don't need to worry about the modern rapid warming. And then they will argue that the temperature records we're using are faked anyway. It doesn't matter that these arguments can even be contradictory internally. So the non-existent warming is caused by CO2 which isn't emitted by humans, but CO2 is also just harmless plant food and all the data is faked by NASA. This is because the point is not to win an argument by presenting a coherent case, but instead to shape how a debate works in a debate format. You know, you'll see this on places like Twitter, virtually any kind of argument on Twitter devolves into this. You can respond to one tweet with one argument with four or five different arguments, and you're forcing the opponent essentially to spend an inordinate amount of time trying to refute them all, and it makes it look like the argument has been won or lost by essentially the person who is throwing out the fewest comments. To a casual observer of the conversation or the argument, you can see that you're spending all of your time refuting these points individually. And if they are, say, inclined already to agree with the denialist case, then they might think, Hey, it looks like they've got so many arguments here. Surely one of them must be correct. Look at all of these holes in the mainstream theory. Now, you can see why engaging with this type of argumentation is not particularly constructive, because unlike people who ascribe to the broad scientific consensus around climate change, these people don't need to stick to one explanation for the phenomenon that are being observed, right? All they need to do is just continually throw up many, many different types of argument, and not really stick too closely to any one tack. And so it can become very tedious and frustrating, and you don't really persuade the person because they've obviously already come to their conclusion and simply adapt the evidence uh, or use different strands of evidence or argumentation to reach that conclusion in any case. 
luckily for me, other people have actually done this already, where they've refuted all of these individual arguments. Skeptical Science is a great website, which has kept track of virtually every denialist myth, fabrication, misrepresentation, and, you know, the fringe views and some of the fringe scientists who have pursued these ideas and the flaws and rebuttals for that. And, you know, they do this with links to the peer-reviewed literature. It's a really good resource to the extent that actually uh, Skeptical Science has been banned from many different uh, forums where people express doubt about anthropogenic climate change, basically because most of their arguments have been refuted by this website and they don't like to look at it anymore, Um, (laughs) which uh, is amusing. Um, If you're spending time on those forums, don't, because it's a lost cause at this stage. But of course, if you find someone in your life who is coming to you and saying, well, I heard that maybe it was caused by clouds or maybe it was caused by volcanoes or something, then you can go to Skeptical Science and I'll have a good link to a solid explanation of why the denialist argument is false, um, the extent to which parts of it may be scientifically valid or not, and then you know, you'll know you get into a refutation there. So I do recommend that. But if I was going to make an episode like that, then I would essentially just end up reading from that website and supplementing it with my own notes. Um, if people want to win these sorts of arguments, then I, I really think I would urge them to check that out. With the awareness, of course, that it is very difficult to win an argument with someone who's entrenched in a position they came to without much consideration of the evidence. So this might not be completely constructive, and others have also done a much better and more comprehensive job than I could here. But there's another reason I'm going to talk about a different paper and a different uh, body of work that's been done by some other people. Because I have an awareness that broadly I would be preaching to the choir if I did that, and I want to tell you things that you don't already know, And I don't think that it would be that constructive to go through that. But the other important thing is that I think how you frame the debate around climate change is very important. The types of debates and conversations that you have and that you give a platform to, a platform such as this anyway, is very important. There is a fallacy that a lot of people seem to fall into concerning bias. There's an idea that you can be unbiased simply by presenting both sides of an argument. You know, you're fair, you're balanced, you're considering the evidence. But if you think about this for a little while, the problem that you see is that this idea is really concealing a much more fundamental editorial process which is taking place. After all, the key point is that you're choosing the argument and the debate that is taking place here. In other words, you're setting the Overton window for a reasonable debate. You're sort of implicitly saying when you do this that people on both sides of this argument might have a point. All of the questions are leading to some extent because by including this issue, there's a sense that it is a reasonable issue for people to disagree on. It might be controversial. One side might be more convincing than the other. But for example, you're not going to turn on a mainstream news channel and see on one of these politics debate shows people debating whether it's okay to eat people if you're feeling peckish. Okay, there might not be many people who would advocate that you should just chomp down on people if you're feeling hungry. But still, an editorial decision is being made not to platform that kind of debate, even if that editorial decision is based on the perception of what mainstream public opinion is. The point is that you're always making this type of editorial decision when you're even framing a debate in the first place. And, you know, you could talk about this in all kinds of different ways in terms of things that do and don't get covered in different types of media channels and the the ways in which questions are posed, even about the same topic. And I'm sure any of you who've consumed uh, media, news media, will, will know that this is how these things work on a number of different 
issues, particularly controversial issues. People are constantly trying to frame the debate. So for that reason, and throughout this series really, I haven't wanted to concentrate so much on this question of is anthropogenic climate change real? Because I think this would be a step backwards. I recognise that sadly, way too many people are outside of the Overton window that I'm setting here. But just as if I wanted to see a debate on the COVID-19 pandemic, I'd rather see people arguing over what's the most appropriate response, or how should we distribute vaccines, or things like this, rather than some solved question about whether it's real or not, or whether vaccines are beneficial or harmful. Even if there are fringe groups who would probably say that the virus isn't real and it's been made up, you know, I don't want to see that debate because I don't think it's particularly constructive. So I think a much more interesting set of questions when it comes to climate change and a more reasonable debate, both scientifically and politically, surrounds, well, how bad is it going to be and what are we going to do about it? What should we do about it? Within those questions, there's a spectrum of opinions out there. Of course, I have my own views, everyone does, but I think this is intrinsically a much more up-to-date and interesting question. The reality, as the world's governments and most leading authorities accept the science of climate change and set ever more stringent targets for emissions, is that thankfully, finally, decades after the scientific evidence was quite overwhelming, the mainstream discussion is not, is this happening, but what should we do about it? And that means that the natures of the discussions and the debates that you might be having around climate change will have changed. And it's in this context that I want to discuss an excellent paper that was produced by a number of different academics uh, called Discourses of Climate Delay. So it was by uh, scientists William Lamb, uh, Julius Steilenberger, et al. So a whole bunch of people contributed, but those are the first and last authors. And I think this paper really gives a great introduction to the landscape of actual conversations that are now going on around climate change. And maybe thinking about these arguments is more relevant for us now. The paper also has the advantage that it's short, it's simple, and it's been written up in a lot of different places online, so you don't have to have access to that paper, including, as ever, the excellent Carbon Brief. So if you want to read more about this, check them out and Google Discourses of Climate Delay and you'll see plenty of articles that the authors have written explaining their points of view. Now obviously the paper's authors generally think we're not going far enough yet to tackle the problem of climate change, and given that global emissions have increased every single year except for pandemics and recessions, and as I write, look set in 2021 to start to rebound close at least to their pre-pandemic levels, it's quite hard to argue that we're not delaying action on this problem. The point that the authors make is that the debate in general has now shifted away from arguing whether climate change is real or not, to a set of arguments constructed to justify delaying action, or not taking action, or that current inadequate actions will turn out to be good enough in the long run. In other words, their argument is that delay has replaced denial, and so the arguments we need to be looking at are the arguments for delay, and not the arguments for denial. And I think we've talked about this a little bit before, especially on our Newsy episodes. As increasingly large numbers of governments, corporations and so on announce these net zero targets, this is great and progress to be welcomed, but the debate increasingly now shifts to, okay, everyone's acknowledged the problem and announced a target. But do they have a realistic plan? Are they implementing it? Are they putting the things in place that are going to do that? Are they making up for any changes that will come about as part of this plan? Do the words match up to the actions? These are the questions we now have to ask when it comes to assessing climate policy, otherwise it might just be greenwashing. And the issue with this, of course, is that this second-order task is a much more difficult job. It's very easy to find out if a government has set a target for emissions, and it's very easy to repeat that target. But it's much harder to determine if their policies will actually add up to delivering it. It's very easy to spot someone who is outright denying climate change and point to them as the problem, 
But if someone is saying all of the right things but not actually doing them, it's a lot more difficult to hold these people to account. And this is similar when it comes to the discourse. You know, it's much easier to spot someone who is being a climate change denier, but it's harder to argue with more subtle and sophisticated arguments that might ultimately serve the cause of delay. And these arguments are more sophisticated than flat denial. There's also a range of them that essentially appeal to different groups of people with different ideologies and predispositions. And this makes the task harder, because they might appeal to you in in ways that flat denial of science won't, but in, in ways that are more subtle than that. You've probably come across people who make several of these different types of arguments already. But what's great about this paper is it categorises them all, and they, they explicitly say they'd like to be like sceptical science for the debunked scientific arguments. Now, obviously, a lot of these are points of view, political-type arguments, and therefore you can't quite necessarily debunk them in the same way that you can debunk something with scientific evidence that is supposed to be a question of science. But what the paper does let you do is see how these narratives and arguments can operate to support delays to the climate action that we need. So let's get into it. There are 12 lines of argument considered in the paper. They further split these delaying arguments into four categories. Those that redirect responsibility, emphasise non-transformative change, emphasise the downsides of change, and surrender. So over this episode and the next one, we'll look at each in turn and briefly talk about each of these arguments. So let's start with arguments that redirect responsibility. (laughs) You'll find some of these to be quite classic arguments. For example, we start with the classic whataboutism argument. Our carbon footprint is tiny compared to X. Until they act, there's no point in us acting. Typically, in this case in the West, X will be China. Another way you'll sometimes see it framed, which I find quite deceptive, I think President Trump may have done this once, but there's similar quotes all over the place, is comparing a proposed national climate policy to a global temperature or emissions target. In other words, you might say, Even if we enacted this climate policy, it would only account for 1% of emissions, it would only reduce global temperatures by 0.1 degrees, or similar. Obviously, whataboutism is essentially classic redirection. It's a question of why should you care about one thing because someone else is doing something worse, and if we all lived our lives in this way, then we would never get anything done. And I think what makes it frustrating to deal with is how obviously people wouldn't accept this argument in most contexts. It's not going to get you out of paying your taxes. If I've committed a couple of murders, I'm not going to get away with it by pointing out that Ted Bundy killed more people, or that the Zodiac Killer is still on the loose. But in the case of climate change, it's silly for a number of reasons. We know that everyone has to act together, all nations need their own plans which have to add up globally, all organisations need their own plans which have to add up globally. We've talked about the issues of equity and justice. The West is burning fossil fuels to get rich and then denying that to others. The fact that this is a difficult coordination problem is not news to everyone. And, in fact, the what about China argument is less valid than it once was. China now has an ambitious net zero target, much like Western nations, to get to net zero by 2060. Given where they are now, I think that's quite ambitious. We've discussed in previous episodes how much they stand to profit from a green revolution. People can argue that they're not on track to meet that target yet, or that the target should be more ambitious for a greater probability of lower climate damages. 
But you could make those same arguments about Western nations too. So unless you're going to get very specific about the implementations of these climate change policies, then it's it's difficult to say that this argument holds a great deal of water. And even if you could say that the biggest emitter in the world was going to be emitting CO2 to its heart's content, that doesn't make your actions worthless. Every tenth of a degree that we avoid, every tonne of CO2, it reduces both harms to people and the risks of things getting even worse. And also, speaking in terms of innovation, every deployment of a low-carbon system for electricity, energy, transport, industry, agriculture, all of these things reduce the price globally, they set the benchmark, they set the example, and they make the transition more likely. Even if you were the only nation on Earth trying to do these things, it would still make the global transition more likely if you were doing them. Investments in solar panels in places like Europe and China and other places have made them the cheapest form of electricity across most of the world. And that's going to influence what happens worldwide, regardless of the politics of any individual country. So whataboutism is silly in most contexts, and it's especially silly when you're talking about a global problem like climate change. Of course, the answer to it is to say that everyone needs to contribute. The fact that maybe some people aren't contributing doesn't mean that you are freed of your obligation to contribute. And also, that's where you want to be talking about the global diplomacy and leveraging what advantages you have with other countries to do that, rather than just throwing up your hands and saying, oh, well, we tried, but not everyone is on board, so we can't solve the problem. Typically, you will see whataboutism coupled with another argument, which is their second one, which is the idea of free rider advantage. And this is really the implicit threat behind whataboutism. So the idea here is that mitigating climate change actually puts us at a disadvantage, while it provides free benefits to others who don't have to take that action. So we'd be the ones investing in trying to tackle climate change, while other countries would be happily emitting as much as they possibly could. Some people have also described climate change as a tragedy of the commons. The idea here is that if you have commons land that a group of people own and exploit, well, it's in everyone's incentive to take as much as they can from that land, and no one can really be bothered to maintain it properly, since most of the effort of maintaining it only benefits other people. And thus, inevitably, the equilibrium situation is that land is destroyed. So there are a couple of different lines to take against the free rider problem. I mean, I would point out for a start that it's a little bit ironic to say that we, uh, in the wealthy West, where you hear this argument quite a bit, would be worried about free riders um, in terms of the developing nations of China and India still having higher emissions than us. Because when you consider it from a sort of equity and justice point of view, it's obvious that we have been the free riders, right? You know, Britain was built on coal and steam and everything else. Um, We've had historically very high levels of carbon emissions and fossil fuel exploitation. So if fossil fuel exploitation is so great, then nations that have already benefited from it have had their free ride, and they've effectively used up more and more of the uh, atmospheric levels of carbon you can emit without having a really unlivable planet. And then, of course, they want to turn around and deny that to other nations. And so to say that there would only be one group of free riders in this equation is a a little bit ignoring the context of history. But I think more fundamentally than that, you could point out that many of the actions that would help us against climate change also have a lot of co-benefits for us as well. Obviously, one of those being a livable planet for everyone in the long term. It's quite important. But people have pointed to it as a sort of Keynesian type of stimulus to revive economies. 
work to be done and people who can directly and usefully be directed towards doing it. Techno-optimists, you know, will outline the new industries that can come from the solutions to climate change, and there's going to be health and environmental benefits from activities that we know will reduce our carbon emissions. So even if you are limited to viewing everything as a Darwinian competition of self-interest, then there are ways to engage with the free rider problem and point out that it's uh, not a very nuanced point of view that you're sacrificing something to invest in mitigating against climate change, when it can be an investment as well. But I have to say, personally, I think that this is just a kind of thinking that is too simplistic about human nature and what societies can do, you know? You will get a tragedy of the commons in a world where everyone is homo economicus, running around constantly maximising their own self-interest without regard to anything or anyone else. But real people aren't actually like that. We act for all kinds of different reasons. We have other loyalties and other motivations in how we live. Call me naive or idealistic, maybe you should, but I find the idea that it's inevitable, that it's just human nature that we will destroy ourselves and our collective home, that's very doomy to me. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. We can and should choose a different course. So in some ways, I wonder if exposing the fundamental cynicism and pessimism of this argument, entailing with it a conviction that problems can't be solved, might even be a better route sometimes than talking about the numerous benefits of an active climate policy. But as it is, there's very little evidence, I would say, that those countries that are going to continue burning fossil fuels themselves are necessarily going to have massive economic advantages over countries that don't. The final argument under the redirecting responsibility category is another one which might be beloved of the homo economicus types, which is individualism. And this is essentially shifting the burden entirely onto individuals to solve the climate problem. The onus is ultimately on consumers to stop consuming fossil fuels. And you might see this sometimes in defences of the fossil fuel industry where they'll say, well, you know, they are responsible for these emissions, but we're buying their products. This is always interesting territory politically, right, where everyone is pointing fingers at each other. We know that fossil fuel companies have actually done this subtly in the past by pushing things like carbon footprint calculators and so on onto the general public, encouraging information campaigns that are focused on ways that you personally can reduce emissions. If they can pull it off, the greatest trump card ever is not to convince people that climate change isn't real, but to make them feel solely responsible for it, or to convince them that it can't be solved because the changes they will need to make are too vast. I'm not a big fan of Exxon telling me that their climate problem and mine are the same, but at the same time it hits at what is arguably a weak spot historically for environmental activists and academics. How often will you see this type of argument? Oh, those scientists flew to that conference, they drove to that site, they live in houses, this sort of thing. And sadly, I think that this is a headspace that it's all too easy to get into, when you consider the huge changes that you might need to make to live a totally carbon-neutral lifestyle, and how difficult or impossible it might be for you personally to do these things, and how unlikely it is for others to follow suit along a similar trajectory. It can feel like the problem is simply insoluble, it can feel like you personally are not contributing enough, and so how can you expect anyone else to? And then you're pulled into this apathy and despair that the problem will never be solved. And the, the sort of pernicious thing about this is that it can almost pose as kind of caring about the problem and, you know, saying, oh, well, the best way to do things is for you personally to do X, Y, and Z. The fallacy, I think, is subtle, but the reality is that, of course, 
Most activists, scholars, politicians, whatever, would acknowledge that what we need is both individual and systemic changes. And that these aren't a pure dichotomy either. The individual changes feed into the systemic changes and vice versa. Because these quote-unquote systems are things that we build and things that we create in the ways that we act day to day. And we can just as easily create them in a different way. At the same time, we know that individual actions won't add up unless we can change the systems that individuals live in, and that it is unreasonable to try and push all of this onus to change those systems onto individuals, and particularly when it comes to the topic of consumer choice. So another interesting example of this came up recently with the Netflix documentary Seaspiracy. Now, I have to say, I'm not actually a huge fan of this documentary, or indeed its predecessor, I think you can safely say they're pretty polemical. They have points of view they're trying to get across. And in the course of that, they do misrepresent some facts. The tone is kind of quite conspiratorial, I think. So I'm not really going to discuss it as the best documentary about the oceans, but because it's popular, you might have seen it, and it made me think of similar dilemmas. But for those who haven't seen it, the documentary essentially documents many problems with the fishing industry, overfishing, illegal activities, practices that are environmentally damaging. The argument then, though, and where it differs from other types of documentary, is that it then goes on to attack sustainability in practice as well. The argument made is that consumers might think they're helping the environment by buying fish that is marked as sustainably caught. But a combination of lax enforcement of the rules, and other types of environmental damage from sustainable quote-unquote activities like fish farming, mean that in effect even sustainable fish is unsustainable at the current levels of consumption. The main message you get from the end of this documentary is that you should just stop eating fish altogether. There is no ethical way to consume the fish when overfishing and bad practices are the state of the world today. This is a tricky area where practical and political arguments overlap, and I'm not going to say that anyone is wrong if they watch that documentary and decide that the moral thing for them to do is not to eat fish anymore. But I think on one level it might be true that fish consumption is simply too high and needs to come down, and that you can contribute to that by reducing your intake or stopping it altogether. On another level, abandoning or attacking sustainability as a concept leads us to a pretty gloomy place. To what extent is it possible to even be sustainable? Could these problems be fixed with better enforcement of regulations, better regulations, different practices, even if they were more expensive and put fish out of reach of more people? I honestly don't know. It is this not knowing and the fact that we haven't really demonstrated that we can have our fish and nice things and eat them too, which makes the argument from individualism so compelling, that you should individually live the kind of lifestyle that, if everyone lived it, might take us below that threshold of consumption. At the same time, though, I wonder if the final conclusion the documentary makers came to is really that productive in the long run, because it does fall back on individualism, and it suffers from the same problem that any individualism approach will fall down to. In some ways it's a bit ironic, because the strength of the film is showing ways in which our current approach, with the ideology behind it, um, is flawed. And the ideology behind it is that if consumers value sustainability, they will pay for it. But the reason this is flawed is obvious. We're not homo economicus. We don't have perfect information when we make purchases. No one is going to be meticulously researching the entire origins of the cans of tuna they buy, and in many cases they can't actually do that. There's an entire industry of advertising dedicated to making you think that things are sustainable when they may not be. 
Seaspiracy shows that in many cases, you can't really get that information at all. Not only do we not have perfect information, but the information we do have can be misleading or incomplete. So clearly, this market-based approach to sustainability, where everyone voluntarily chooses environmentally friendly options, is not necessarily going to work by itself. This seems to gesture towards collective action, but at the same time, the film falls back on individualism by telling us the solution is to personally stop eating fish. I don't know how likely this argument is to cause a systemic change either. A few million people watched the film, of those, half a million were inspired enough to sign a petition by the film's creators. Let's be generous and say that every one of those 500,000 people uh, previously ate loads of fish and now never eat fish again. But it's not really clear how much impact that has on a planet approaching 8 billion souls. If anything, their aims to petition various governments to enact more stringent conservation policies might end up being more effective in the long run. I think if you have 500,000 committed individuals, that's probably the way that you do end up having the most impact. So overall, I think the important thing is to keep emphasising it. Individual and systemic change is necessary if we want to address climate change. People will argue until the methane-filled cows come home about what levels of both individual and systemic change are necessary. And that is a very, very valid and important argument. And I don't want to come down on one side of that, and I don't want to say that I know the answer either. But, framings which place the onus excessively on individuals to solve the problem, and ignore that other aspect of the systems that need to be changed, and the ways in which systemic change make individual change more easy. I mean, imagine if there actually was uh, sustainably caught fish or sustainably bred fish that you could easily obtain. Imagine if there actually were governments that were capable of eliminating some of these illegal practices of slavery on fishing vessels and so on. That's not a problem that I can do that much to solve individually. But obviously, systemically, there are things that we can do to change it. But when you have a framing that only gives you one side of the problem, then you can say it's a discourse of delay. So that's redirecting responsibility. Our world of whataboutism, free rider arguments, and excessive individualism. And we can move on to some other arguments that they talk about as discourses of delay. So let's start with the discourses which emphasise the downsides of change. One example of this that I quite like, and which I think maybe we're all a little bit guilty of, is policy perfectionism. The argument here is that, quote, we should seek only perfectly crafted solutions that are supported by all affected parties, otherwise we will fail and waste opportunities for adoption, end quote. This has been a big problem in the past, I think, when people who've wanted to advocate for this stuff have been concerned about how much buy-in you need to get and whether you can craft better policies that are going to work in a particular way and uh, whether the time is right to actually start launching you know, what you would want to launch to change these problems. And I think, ultimately, climate change is a huge problem. Addressing it adequately requires transformations across many different sectors and many different ways in which we live our lives. And these transformations just have to be on a huge scale. They have to be on a global scale. And we need to address it fast. The majority of governments are now saying that, likely within the lifetimes of most people listening to this, we need to have essentially solved the problem. It's going to be difficult to do this in a way that's going to be totally unobtrusive for everyone. If you're involved in the coal industry, for example, this change is probably going to be disruptive for you. The problem with this as a discourse of delay is that there are two paths that you can take. 
you can either acknowledge that some people may well lose out from a given policy or may well not want to take changes and then take the necessary time and effort to persuade people that they're still worth doing or address their concerns or compensate them for the changes or simply delay and hope that some perfect policy will arise or wait for industries to transform themselves without intruding on them and so on. But if this is an emergency and we are going to achieve these targets, we need to figure out how to bring people with us rather than just hoping for perfect solutions that are inoffensive to or loved by everyone to materialise, or for the problems to solve themselves. Another point I would make that isn't actually on this list, but which you do sometimes hear quite regularly, fits under that policy perfectionism umbrella. Again, I think it's fairly easy to refute, but you do hear it an awful lot, and that is emphasising the environmental and social costs of things that are likely to be required to address climate change. You've seen it before, right? Someone comes along and informs us that solar panels and batteries are also manufactured and have an environmental impact as well. Or that there are greenhouse gas emissions on the grid and therefore switching to electric cars is not going to solve the problem. Again, it's clearly true that an awful lot of human activities do have environmental and even negative social and health impacts as well. Crudely speaking, though, to me, the goal of all of this is to provide people with the best lives we can without imposing unacceptable costs on the environment. And there's obviously two sides to that coin, right? How do we limit the cost to the environment? How do we provide people with the best lives we can? What do we mean by best is another big question, of course. But people are going to wildly disagree on how to do this, whether it's possible, and their favourite solutions. Whether we should focus on reducing our consumption massively, or whether we can basically just switch to a different set of technologies and more or less continue on as we're doing now. That's all fine, and it's all worth debating, and I think that in each field, and maybe for each person, there will be a different answer. But simply by saying, solar panels also use raw materials, checkmate, you're not really engaging with that argument. And these things are taken into account by climate scientists, policy wonks and scholars. We have things like life cycle assessments, which illustrate that, yes, the greenhouse gas emissions from that electric car really are lower than that with fossil fuels under XYZ conditions. But this is a kind of perfectionism, I think, that feeds into a kind of doomism. If you're waiting for a means of harnessing energy and having stuff that has no environmental impact at all, you will be waiting for a long time. If you're suggesting that the key has to be a big reduction in consumption, then I think you need to make that argument. I think that a lot of people are well-intentioned when they say these things, and I think that others are just trying to muddy up any proposed solution and paint them all as impossible, because what they're really interested in is delay. So again, you know, this is not me here saying that there's absolutely no sustainability issues with technologies like EVs or solar panels. I would never say something that blanket that's obviously false. But what I will say is that I think that sometimes you see this argument, which has a grain of truth to it, being used as a sort of well, it doesn't really matter what we do because there's actually no way of changing things uh, because we don't have perfect solutions available to us. And you sort of want to shake the people and say, okay, well then what actually is your solution? Or are, are, are you just here to tell us that there's absolutely no hope and we should all give up? And I think, you know, a world where we solve climate change is doubtless much, much better than uh, the world that we would live in if we don't. Uh, there would be less damaging impacts from climate change. There would be more intentionality in our direction. We would have perhaps rebalance the way that we think about the way we live as well. I, I view that as a better world, but it's not going to be a utopia, and we can't expect that to establish itself overnight. 
And so letting the perfect be the enemy of the good can, of course, be another cause of delay. There's a couple of other interesting examples in the paper which show, I think, the breadth of this type of argument and also how it adapts to different communities and different political audiences. Not everyone is going to be receptive to the argument that addressing climate change is bad because it stops fossil fuel companies from making profits from selling oil, coal and natural gas. So another argument is the appeal to social justice. Paraphrasing from the paper here, they say, quote, The appeal to social justice moves social impacts to the forefront of policy discussions, framing a transition to renewable energy as burdensome and costly to society. These are the arguments that pit addressing climate change against prosperity and jobs. Such issues are a legitimate and crucial aspect of climate policy deliberations, so one should carefully address these claims. For instance, are other aspects of injustice addressed in such discourses, such as the failure to act and the impact that would have? Are the benefits of a transition disregarded, such as improved public health, regional development and employment opportunities, or greater community resilience? A discourse of delay would fail to acknowledge that there are benefits in these discourses and focus attention only on the short-term downsides and costs. End quote. So I think it's interesting here. N- number one, of course, you see the classic rhetoric where we're not actually focusing on uh, big fossil fuel companies and the profits of their executives, but on the workers who will be displaced by that. Now, that's not to say that that isn't a problem. There are a lot of genuine concerns here which absolutely depend on the context in which policies are being introduced and the ways that they're being introduced. After all, it's perfectly possible to have regressive climate policies which do disproportionately impact poor people, or indeed climate policies that have other side effects or negative aspects to them that outweigh the climate benefit that you get from the policy. Here in the UK, for example, we have a winter fuel allowance that pays elderly people to help them with their heating bills. Lots of that goes on natural gas. Clearly, you could say, well, if we scrap this, we're scrapping government payments that are being used to buy fossil fuels. That can be framed as a climate policy. But if you don't replace it with anything, then that would have a negative impact on vulnerable people. So there's an obvious example of a policy there that you would need to be very careful with before you considered it as a lever in climate policy. And this sort of thing has indeed happened in the past. One of the things that the Gilets Jaunes in France, they were angered by, was increased fuel taxes, which were aimed at tackling carbon dioxide emissions. And I think since then, there's been a lot of reflection in the climate space on how to address this. But again, it sort of shows you the disadvantage of trying to implement policy in a model, right? If all you have is like a, an economic model and you can just turn up the carbon price and there's no such thing as gilet jaunes or people who react to this or regressive impacts that aren't really considered within that model, then you know that, that's when you need to be concerned. So what I'm not saying here is that you should just override every possible social justice argument by saying that climate change is an emergency and must take precedent. There's clearly an argument to have over the costs and benefits of these individual policies in every case, And in some cases, you might decide that a policy's climate benefits are outweighed by the disadvantages, or that you need to do something else to compensate people for what you're doing. That's why we emphasise so often, I think, the just transition. The idea that we're not just going to shut down fossil fuel industries, but that we're going to replace them and ensure a fair deal for people who are currently employed by them. And that's part of bringing a political constituency with you when you're trying to solve any type of problem. 
The issue, though, arises from misleading arguments which would have us concluding that there is absolutely no way that climate policies can be more socially just than the sort of caricature that they want to paint of them. So, you know, there are examples as well of carbon taxes which got popular support by redistributing the revenues, supporting the poorest with tax breaks or dividends in other areas, and clearly communicating the aims of what people were trying to do. You've got to get social buy-in from the people you're going to impose stuff on. So again, these social justice arguments are very important for people who want to make good policy. They have to be considered, which is why we're talking about a just transition. But if people are trying to convince you that these problems are insurmountable, or they don't give any attention to ways they could be addressed, and they try to frame things as a climate change versus the poor, or climate versus jobs argument, which then sort of comes back to kind of free rider arguments again of like, well we're doing something for the benefit of the whole world when we should be focusing on our citizens at home. The paper's authors would argue that this is a subtle and pervasive discourse of delay. But if you apply this on a global scale, then you can actually get something that's even more dramatic, which is the appeal to well-being. So these are the types of arguments that fossil fuels are necessary for economic development and growth, which in turn is necessary for lifting poor people out of poverty, and the fossil fuels are the linchpin of a modern economy and human civilization, etc. So really, by curtailing the fossil fuel industry, you would be condemning poor people to continue to live in poverty forever. So an extreme example of this is a quote from David J. O'Donnell, Associate Director of the Massachusetts Petroleum Council. He said, If fossil fuel use were to end tomorrow, the economic consequences would be catastrophic. Starvation would follow, as tractors' fuel tanks ran dry. I mean, in this case, it's a bit of a caricature, but, you know, also a little bit cynical when you suspect some of the people advancing this are not exactly that concerned about social justice or the well-being of the poor. But it is worth debunking ever so quickly, even though it is more disingenuous. Like many of these discourses, there's of course a germ of truth to it, which makes the argument surface-level convincing, especially if you gleefully omit all of the important caveats to what we're saying here. After all, how many times have we talked about how climate change poses huge problems of international equality and justice? There are lots of ideas to address this, though, but the appeal to well-being ignores all of that to hammer home one point. Most people aren't talking about immediately turning off fossil fuels and letting fire and brimstone rain down upon the earth, you know? Again, it's a transition, and a transition which needs to happen, and which all of this delaying discourse makes a lot more difficult. But a managed transition can start with this rapid and serious action. And many of the policies made, including Paris, emphasise the importance of the financial assistance for poorer countries to meet their goals. There are mechanisms to address this, even though they might not be particularly robust. And this comes into the idea of doing this as a species, as a planet, doing this together in a way that's fair for everyone. Of course, we can then point out that there are potential benefits for economic development for nations rich in solar and wind resources, who can now get electricity that will increasingly end up both cheaper and more sustainable than the stuff that comes from fossil fuels. Hopefully that will rely on less costly imports and result in fewer wars over resources like fossil fuels. One point to make, I think, is that we're clearly talking about leapfrogging with technologies and ways of setting up societies here. Clearly, if some new country is getting access to the internet now, they're not going to start with dial-up and bulky 90s PCs and internet cafes. No, they'll obviously skip straight to smartphones, mobile data, Wi-Fi, 3G. Similarly, if you're getting infrastructure, or electricity, to the next billion people, you're under no obligation to build old-fashioned fossil fuel infrastructure first, 
and then replace it with cleaner alternatives, you can actually hope to skip that costly and polluting step altogether. So this idea that again tries to falsely pit the well-being of poor people against the continued use of fossil fuels, I think is disingenuous. That's not to say that the question of where people are going to get their energy from and whether we can consider the ways in which we can erase any regional disparities and deal with those equity and justice issues, those are very important. But if what you're doing is saying that this is an excuse for delaying or not getting involved with climate action, then it is a discourse of delay. So we've covered six out of the 12 discourses of delay there, and we've talked about shifting the blame via individualism, free rider arguments, whataboutism. We've talked about emphasising the downsides of the transition through appeals to social justice, global development, or perfectionism. And that's where we're going to leave this episode, and we'll come back to the other half of the paper and the next six arguments, and a few concluding words on what to make of it in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we've been talking about the discourses of climate delay. If you want to help us out, there are many ways to support the show. You can find all of those on physicspodcast.com. There you'll find the Patreon, where you're probably listening to this episode early, if you're listening to it early. Thanks very much for your support. I am very appreciative of everyone who has done that so far. You will also find individual donate links where you can donate to the show if you want to do it on a one-time case, but the Patreon is a good thing to subscribe to. There's no sort of lower limit on uh, monthly or per-episode contribution. Of a, I think there, if there is a lower limit, it's probably about a dollar. Um, and for that, you will get access to many, many early episodes and, of course, my eternal gratitude. You can, of course, review the show wherever you find it, uh, comment on the show on YouTube or Indeed uh, or anywhere else where you might find it, and uh, I'm very appreciative of everyone who has taken the time to do that. But if you don't want to do any of those things, the most important thing you can do to help support the show, of course, is to tell other people who might be interested in it about the show. If you think someone wants to talk about these discourses of delay, if you think someone's interested in climate change, please do that. And of course, you can get in touch with us via the contact form on the website. All of those emails go to me and I try to answer as many of them as I can. And it always makes my day to get email. So please do send in your requests, comments, concerns, questions, uh, feedback via the form there. We'll be back next week with the second part of this series. Until next time then, please do take care.